you know, um, this text, just kind of as I've been working through the text, and we won't finish it today, so it is going to be a part one. It'll be a two-parter. If you're not already there, I invite you to turn to Philippians chapter one. We'll be looking at this section here, verses 12 through 18, and uh, looking at it over the next, like I said, few Sundays. It's another one of those texts that just makes me realize I have so much more work that God, you know, needs to do do in my own heart. You think you're doing pretty good, and then you read the Bible. <laughs> and you're like, ah, all right, God, keep working in, working in me. I, I wonder, did anybody read through Philippians last, read through the entire letter last week? I've been asking every week. Did anybody do that? Anybody? Well, next week, I want you to show hands, okay? I'm going to ask you to show hands, and I'm going to, again, encourage you also to, this next week, to read through the entire letter before you arrive again on Sunday, okay? I want to encourage you to just, not, it's not a long letter. It's not long. Uh, also, for background, so that you understand what kind of led up, just some context to the letter, uh, read Acts 21 through 28. Read Acts 21 through 28. Uh, and let me give you a little bit about that, but it, there's so much there. It's an incredible story. I mean, who needs TV? I mean, you want to talk about drama, it, read the Bible. Honestly, read it. And so Acts 21 through 28, read that. You'll see what I'm talking about. Conspiracies, plots to kill, political things going on. Um, but anyway, let me, let me give a, just a few words concerning Acts 21 and 28, because it leads up to kind of where we are and what Paul is talking about here in our passage. Paul arrived, and I'm leaving out a ton of stuff, but Paul arrives in Jerusalem, unbelieving Jews, meaning Jews that uh, rejected Jesus as the Messiah. <clears throat> they, uh, they hated Paul, who preached Christ and resurrected, and that Jesus was the Christ, and so they made false accusations against Paul. They, they stirred up the crowds there in Jerusalem, uh, the Roman authorities, because the world is under the rule at this time of Rome, the Roman authorities stepped in and they, they took Paul into custody because they can't allow this thing to get out of control. They, uh, they worked hard to maintain a level of peace. So they step in, they take Paul into custody because they're trying to kill Paul, but they're not even sure if they have the grounds to do that and what's going on and the whole city stirred up. And so they just want to calm things down a little bit, so they take him into custody. The apostle uh, Paul exercises his right as a Roman citizen, because Paul is a Roman citizen. He exercises his right as such and appeals to bring his case before Caesar, in part because there's a plot to kill him, and so that he's not going to get anywhere there in Jerusalem. He'll probably just end up dead. So he, he appeals, I want to I stand before Caesar. So Paul is then escorted to Rome from Jerusalem, and that's the story of the ship and all that goes on there and the sailing and such, and, and there in Rome he's placed under house arrest while he awaits his opportunity to present his case. Now what's interesting is Paul had hoped to go to Rome, uh, we know that because he, he says that, he wanted to go to Rome eventually as he's basically taking the gospel to the, the world, right, and he wants to make it to Rome. And he wants to preach there, right in the heart of all the paganism. Uh, but this 
This is certainly not the way that he was probably planning. You know, as a prisoner. <laughs> That's how he ends up in Rome, as a prisoner. He made it there, but he's incarcerated. And while under house arrest, Paul ends up writing this letter to the Philippians, who had heard that he was imprisoned in Rome, and so had sent Epaphroditus, one of their own, to minister to Paul, to care for Paul, bring a gift to Paul. And so, via Epaphroditus, certainly, Paul was able to get an update concerning the church in Philippi, a church that he planted, and took, took the opportunity in response to what he had heard to write a letter back to the Philippians, in part to, to express his gratitude and thanks, uh, but also to uh, speak to matters that came up, certainly, with Epaphroditus. So... This is what I want to just point out, though, right at the front. Paul did nothing wrong. Okay? He's in prison, but he, he did nothing wrong. And so if you read Acts 21 through 28, you'll, you'll see what I'm talking about. It's outrageous. He had broken no laws. This imprisonment of Paul was, you, you could rightly say, unjust and Unfair. And under these difficult circumstances, I could understand someone being quite frustrated. I mean, I get frustrated about traffic, which you all know if you've heard me. I've said it many times, which tells you how much I am frustrated and continue to be about traffic. But he's imprisoned. So, so I could see someone becoming quite, and, and wrongly, right? Wrongly. And I could see someone becoming quite frustrated or, or turning bitter or being consumed by self-pity and maybe start to question the wisdom and goodness and love of God. Could you see that? But as we will see, uh, that was clearly not the case for the Apostle Paul. Beloved, we, we can and should learn much from the grace-infused, Christ-centered life of the Apostle Paul. In fact, near the end of this letter, this letter to the Philippians, Paul writes this. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. You know, I sometimes think, yeah, but that's the Apostle Paul. Yeah, but he just said, and by extension to us and to the church at large, that we can't like, just write him off as the exception to the rule. He's living by the same grace that we have. He's living under the same spirit and the word that we have. He's being empowered by the same God that we are empowered by. He has the same salvation that we have. 
As he did imitate Christ, we are to imitate him. And so as we read these things about him, we can't, and I've been tempted to in my life, to just say, yeah, but that's a one-off. He's just something special. He's a superman. He was a grace-infused man, as I said. He was a Christ-centered man. He was no superman. And he tells us to learn from him and to walk as he walked, as he imitated Christ. Yeah? So that's why I say, when I look at this stuff, and I look at Paul, I'm, I admire him, and it, it causes me to uh, love him more, but I also see, goodness, I fall really short in many ways. So I need to work on that. Hopefully you'll see that too. As we see again and again in the New Testament, life for Paul, as he saw it, as he saw it, was not ultimately about him. Rather, it was all about his Lord. I can't always say that. I want to be able to say that. I am, I am, I am, I am striving. I, I would love for my tombstone to say it was all about his Lord. For Paul, it was, it was all about submitting to the wise will of his glorious Savior. It was all about serving and pleasing Jesus. Paul didn't care, beloved. Paul didn't care. And you'll see this as we read this text. You'll see why I'm saying these things, because it's all there. And not just here, but as you read his other letters, it's so clear. Paul didn't care about his own fame, or glory, or honor in this life. But he did care greatly that all through his life would come to truly know the amazing greatness of Jesus Christ. The Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the one and only Savior of sinners. With that, let's read the text. Beginning in verse 12. Paul writes to the church there in Philippi. I want you to know, brothers, pause, just real quick, just a quick note. Brothers here, and you see this in other translations, can mean brothers and sisters, Christian brothers and sisters. So you could even interpret it or translate it that way. I want you to know, brothers and sisters there in Philippi, my Christian brothers and sisters. The word is again used in verse 14. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some, indeed, Preach Christ from envy and rivalry, 
but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. So here's my loose paraphrase, and it's loose. And it's based on the letter at large as well, and all that I know about what Paul has been communicating and, and will communicate in the letter. Here's my loose paraphrase of what we just read. All right? My dear brothers and sisters in Philippi, I know you are concerned for me, but I want to tell you, I want you to know that my incarceration is being used by God to help further spread the message of Jesus Christ here in Rome. And that really is the important thing. The advance of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, it's not about me or my earthly comfort, but rather it's about Christ and His glory and His fame. And word about Him is spreading even more because of my imprisonment. And in that, I truly rejoice. Is that okay? Loose paraphrase. Now, beloved, I could imagine so many other things that might have been said under the circumstances. And I did, and I wrote them down. <laughs> Maybe something like this. Brothers and sisters, I want you to know that what has happened to me is not right. It is unfair. I certainly did nothing to deserve this. I am a good and faithful man. I serve God. And yet, here I am. Imprisoned. Under house arrest. I am suffering. But not for any wrong I have done. I have lost my personal freedom and guards continually watch over me. I have no more privacy. I am angry. I am frustrated. I am thinking about organizing a protest. <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> this isn't right. We should work together to stop these kind of things from happening to anyone else. <laughs> Let's partner together and fight for justice. Hmm. Nope. That's not even close. 
Not even close. Here's what I want you to know. My imprisonment is serving to advance the gospel. The only, the only parallel, and there are other parallels, but one of the parallels I thought of, since most of us are not going to have those kind of circumstances where we got thrown into the, or we got, a, we got incarcerated because we're preaching the gospel. Maybe someday, maybe, maybe someday, maybe. Maybe if not for us, maybe for our children. But, uh, but I, a parallel, I was just thinking like this, if someone, to try to kind of bring it more down to home for you and for me. It'd be like someone maybe saying, my hospital stay is serving to advance the gospel. My time in chemo is serving to advance the gospel. You know? Like, you just, what? What'd you say? kind of strikes you. My, my present circumstances, though very difficult, are helping to get the word out about Jesus Christ, and in that I rejoice. What? What? Who talks like that? Grace-infused, Christ-centered people talk like that. One commentator says, one can scarcely miss the focus of Paul's concern, speaking about the text here. He says, here and always, Christ in the gospel. Christ in the gospel. It's Christ in the gospel. That's his focus, right? Christ in the gospel. He goes on to say, listen, he goes on to say this, here is how one for whom Christ and the gospel are uppermost responds to adversity. Here's how that one responds to adversity. Which means if the response is different, then maybe Christ and the gospel are not uppermost at least at that time in that person's life. One commentator points out that there is a principle Paul sees, and I agree with him, listen, a principle that Paul sees as governing all of history. All of history, including Paul's history, but everything that's going on. That principle is this, that God directs his government of his people, how he governs them, not the government, it would include that, but the government of his people towards the day of Christ's glory. Let me say that again. That principle is that God directs his government of his people towards the day of Christ's glory. Paul perceives that God turns events to advance the gospel. And he himself, Paul, makes his daily decisions according to to what he sees will best and most proclaim Christ. He's aligning his decisions with the overall plan and will of God. That's smart. That makes sense. That's exactly what the Lord has called us to do. And then he says this, the commentator, the glory of Christ must be our great and controlling interest. In the heat of trial, in the thick of life, in the press of circumstances, the Christian is one who sees no man save Jesus only. 
That's a heavy statement, man. That's a head. I, I want to change it. I want to say the Christian should be one who sees no man save Jesus only. That's what they see. That's what they're living for. That's, that's Paul, though. Paul was one who sees no man save Jesus only. So with that, how did Paul's imprisonment actually serve to advance the gospel? How did that work itself out? How did God work that out? Well, first, Paul wasn't passive in the matter. You know, it just happened? No. Because of Paul's focus, because of the things that Paul believed about God, about Christ, about what was going on in his life, what God was doing, what God's great purposes were, because of all of that, because that he had been saved and the Spirit was working in him and had been working in him, because of his calling, because of all of these things, Paul made decisions according to what he saw, thought was best and would most proclaim Christ. And so we see that being played out. Here in Philippians 1.13, here's a different translation of the, of the passage. Paul writes this, The whole imperial guard and everyone else knows that I am in prison for the sake of Christ. That's how the, this is the first way that the gospel is advancing because of his imprisonment. The imperial guard. Okay, so elite troops. Elite troops, soldiers stationed there in Rome. One writer points out that although they would have guarded Paul around the clock, so realize he's under house arrest, it's possible he's actually in a chain, chained either to a soldier or chained to something. We don't know for certain. It's possible there's a reference of a chain. I don't know if it's on him the whole time. It certainly could have been, but he's not free. He's watched constantly. But it says, although they would have guarded Paul around the clock, the imperial guard, they would have also given him access to visitors. It's a little bit different. He, he could, people could come and go within reason to the house. They would have allowed him to write letters, which he did, and other routine matters. But he goes on to say, since they would rotate on basically four-hour shifts, the guards, Paul would have had access to several or many of them. He's there for a while, guys, under house arrest. So probably the entire guard, or whoever at least was on in that cycle, had those responsibilities. And it goes on to say, from whom eventually the whole guard would have known the reason for his imprisonment, right? Paul wouldn't have been silent. Paul would have shared with these guards exactly while, why he was there. Why? Because it was about Christ. He says, okay, I'm chained to a guard, if that's what it was. Or here's a guard, pagan through and through. Here's my opportunity to tell him why I'm here. And to share with him the one I serve. The one who is truly Lord. You've got to understand how incredibly, on one level, crazy that is. Because as far as the guard was concerned, there is one Lord. His name is Caesar. Or at least he is Lord. But Paul is going to tell them about the one who truly is Lord. He is the Lord of Lords. And the one they should worship and bow to. He's a pagan. And he's going to tell them about the one and only God. 
He's not going to let the time pass and say nothing. He's going to take every opportunity to advance Christ, even if it's while imprisoned. In addition to such testimony, one writer says, these guards would have witnessed many sessions between Paul and those who freely visited him while he was under house arrest. And we learn of that in Acts 28, the very end of Acts 28. It says exactly that, because it kind of leaves off there with Paul under house arrest, that many came to him and he was able to, again, share the truth of Jesus Christ, communicate the gospel to them. And so the guard couldn't, he's an audience, he's right there. So not only would Paul certainly have been communicating directly to the guard, but he had to hear the gospel over and over and over again. And it wasn't just one guard, but the rotation came through, and then the next one, and then the next one, and then the next one. So the gospel had advanced among the whole imperial guard. Paul says it wasn't just the imperial guard. He says everybody else. So we know there were those who came into his quarters. We know from the scriptures, members of the Jewish community, we see that in Acts 28, 17, came and heard Paul, and heard Paul give his testimony concerning Jesus the Christ, We know Gentiles would have been there, at least one. We see that in Philemon 10. And, of course, many other Christian co-workers would have been there and ministering to Paul, and they would have also heard the gospel again. And, again, believers in the gospel, but heard Paul's explanation and further instruction concerning Christ and what the gospel means. And, again, those that were around would have heard it. So Paul, he's locked up, but he's still getting the gospel out. And then this is what the commentator says concerning what's going on here. And I just, this is, these are the kind of points I want to draw out for you and have you think about. He said this, instead of, instead of falling into self-pity, he took every opportunity to make the gospel known. You can see why he might fall into self-pity, right? But he didn't. The second way Paul's imprisonment served to advance the gospel, at least this is what we're told here in the letter, is found in verse 14. And it says, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. If you could leave it up for just a second, brother. Speak the word without fear. Just a quick comment on the text itself. You see the word, word? You see that at the end? The word, word. (laughs) You might have a translation that says word of God. It's probably best just to leave it as word. It's fine. There are some manuscripts that actually add the phrase of God, but probably it probably was added by a scribe. The original most likely is just the word. But what is he talking about when he says the word? Well, we know by the context that for sure he's talking about the message of Christ. If you continue to read on, you'll see in verse 15, in verse 17, and in verse 18, all related to them speaking this word that they were proclaiming or preaching Christ. So it's the message concerning Christ, which is the word of God. Okay, just a little technical note there. 
But another translation of this same passage goes like this. And most of the brothers and sisters, this is the other way that the gospel was spreading because of Paul's imprisonment. And most of the brothers and sisters, referring to the Christians there in Rome, having confidence in the Lord because of my imprisonment, now more than ever dare to speak the word fearlessly. You know, one, uh, again, another scholar, he says, though Paul would surely prefer freedom himself to go out into Rome. That's, he wanted, that's exactly it. He's doing what he can under the circumstances, still focused on Christ, but certainly he'd like to be out there in the public square making Christ known. That's what Paul did, right? So he says, surely he would prefer freedom himself to be doing that. But he recognizes that God has used his curtailment to prod others. The rejoicing that ensues, as we see in verse 18, must be taken seriously. And then he says this, Here is one for whom the gospel is bigger than his personal role in making it known. Why? Because life for Paul was not about Paul. That's why. That's why he can rejoice. I, he doesn't say, man, I should be out there. I mean, I'm the Apostle Paul, who preaches better than me. Other than Jesus, of course. You know, I mean, but, I mean, this is what I was, I'm, this is my wheelhouse, man. This is what I desire to do. I wanted to come here and make Christ known. No. He's, he's rejoicing that his awful circumstances, really, if you just examine them at face value right there, he's imprisoned, unjustly, is actually causing the gospel to spread among his other brothers and sisters who are now have found new courage to make the gospel known. And since Paul is not about Paul, but about Christ, he's glad. He rejoices. So Paul's imprisonment not only gave him an opportunity to preach Christ to the, to the imperial guard, which would have certainly spread to others as well in the government, for sure, a pagan government, but it also served his imprisonment to make the Christians in Rome all the more confident in the Lord and stirred them up and stimulated them to be much more bold in telling others about Christ. Now, one commentator says that one might suppose that Paul's imprisonment would have dampened any evangelizing efforts and have caused the believers in Rome to go underground, right? Like, that's what he was doing, and look where he ended up. Maybe we should tone it down a little bit. But exactly the opposite happened. They drew courage, the writer says, from Paul's example and laid their fears aside. A little rendering of the clause in the latter part of verse 14 goes like this. To a much greater degree, they are daring to speak the word of God without fear. Wow. And again, the word of God being the message of Christ. He says further that it was daring indicates no lessening of the danger. It wasn't like there couldn't have been serious consequences to them making this Christ known within the pagan community, Rome, the empire, who wasn't fond of Christianity. They tolerated it. They put up with it. 
but it spoke against their paganism. It undermined their paganism. So they didn't like Christianity. They, they were comfortable. You could, you could worship any god. You could bring some new gods in. You got a new god? Sure. We'll just add them to our list. It's okay. Because paganism can do that. But the message of Christ claimed there is only one God. One Savior. One King. One Lord. And all are to bow to Him. That's a pretty hardcore message. The writer says, It was daring indicates no lessening of the danger, but a new infusion of courage. Surely the apostle's own attitude of his change must have been largely responsible for these results. It was his attitude while imprisoned. It was his actions and attitude that brought about this effect. And then he says this, listen, if Paul had become depressed by developments, the effect on others would have been far different. Huh? If, if Paul just shut down, and when they would come to him, he'd say, oh, what has happened? What has happened? Does God still love me? If Paul went silent, what effect would you think that would have on the other brothers and sisters there in Rome? Concerning the link between his imprisonment and their increase of confidence in the Lord, one scholar says this, No doubt the Romans saw Paul's devotion to Christ, and such an example could only be a stimulus. That makes sense, right? But no doubt also they saw his unbroken confidence that Jesus is Lord, which is why I don't care if you're the imperial guard. Before you, before Caesar, I will speak of him, and I will tell you of him, and I will call on you to bow to him, because he's Lord. He says, they saw his unbroken confidence that Jesus is Lord to be trusted even when everything appears to go wrong, in sovereign control, even when his servants seem to fall into the power of man. Paul knows better. The Lord's got this. There's nothing outside of his control. You'll see later, he said, I was put here. We'll talk about that when we get to it. This was no accident. God's got me where he wants me. To make the gospel known. I have access that I wouldn't have had access to. I'm preaching to the imperial guards. He says, surely it is this trustworthy Christ, as Paul demonstrated, that they saw afresh and they came to trust him more confidently. Trust in their Lord. Confidence showed itself in the manner of their witness, which was more bold and without fear. And beloved, there would be reason to... Listen, um, in our day, we're fearful more, I would say, generally because we don't, you know... Uh, they're gonna, they're not gonna think well of me. Like maybe they won't be my friend or something. I don't, you know, or they'll think I'm stupid. 
or something like that, right? I mean, it's often that for us. Let's be honest. It could be, you know, a break in family relationships, something like that. I could see that too. Um, I don't want him to make fun of me. I don't want him to defriend me on Facebook. Because, you know, I have a number I'm trying to hit, and that would make it even more difficult. I... I'm exaggerating a little bit, but I don't know, maybe not, maybe not for some. Uh, there was a real, like, a real fear. Uh, there was not the freedom uh, that we have here, and we kind of just take for granted. Uh, the world was, was uh, at least the government, was entirely pagan. Christians were, they were suspicious of Christians. They didn't like Christianity they being those in charge and in power. Uh, the fear, one writer says, probably reflects the historical situation in Rome and even just this idea that all of a sudden there was a new boldness uh, because of Paul's imprisonment and a new confidence in the Lord that, that demonstrated itself in this fearlessness of preaching Christ to basically anybody and everyone that was around that they could preach to. But he says it probably reflects the historical situation in Rome in the early 60s, where this would have been about this timing, when Nero's madness was peaking, the emperor, and the church there had begun to fall under suspicion, as Nero's program against them just a couple years later bears witness. And that's where you hear all those horror stories, you know. Uh, just, yeah, let's kill some Christians. And really brutally. He goes on to say the present situation in Rome for the followers of Christ had perhaps, understandably, led them to a more cautious form of evangelism that, than was usual for early Christians. Possibly. So when they first broke out, man, they're just telling everyone, but in Rome, they're in Rome, in the empire? I don't know. Do you want to live? Do you not want trouble? You know, I just want to mind my own business and do my own thing. Maybe they would have been uh, more cautious about just who they shared Christ with. Certainly not the imperial guard. <laughs> he goes on to say, for good reason, then Paul joyfully explains to the Philippian believers that the net effect of his own imprisonment has been to give their Roman brothers and sisters extraordinary courage to proclaim Christ at the heart of the empire itself where storm clouds are brewing. So I think that could be it. And then I have this quote for you. I wanted you to see this. There is something remarkable about, about this. This quote here by Mottier. That'll pop up in a, in a second. There is something remarkable about this. Paul was in prison for the very reason that he was bold and without fear in his stand for Christ. Yet suddenly the instinct of self-preservation began to wither in them and a new fearlessness took over. You know, I wonder why. Let me suggest why. Because like Paul, it, be, it became for them less about them and more about Christ. What does it matter? This whole thing is about Christ. This is where all of history is going, to the glory of Christ. But listen, beloved, Paul's imprisonment could have gone, it could have produced very different results as we've already noted. It could have gone very different. As I read earlier, as some commentators pointed out, 
If he had become depressed by developments, the effect on others would have been far different. If he would have fallen into self-pity and not taken the opportunity that he had under the circumstances to make the gospel known, then what would have been the outcome? The gospel would not have advanced, at least not there under those circumstances, and not to the degree that it did. There would have been no benefit to the Christian body there. In fact, the example they would have got was, shut your mouth. One writer says that Paul's suffering was a positive, was a positive fruit-bearing thing. Paul's suffering, because that's what it was, was a positive fruit-bearing thing. Hear me. It was a positive fruit-bearing thing. Automatically? No. It was because of the way he thought about the situation, which was biblical, the way he thought about Christ, which was biblical, and then acting on the way he thought about those things, that it led to fruit. He could have thought differently about those things and then acted differently and no fruit would have been produced. In fact, it could have even have done damage to the spread of the gospel. One writer says this, not every suffering Christian is as fruitful as was the apostle, nor even fruitful in any sense at all. Many a Christian suffers without exercising any influence for good upon the world or the church. Just let that sit there for a second. Many a Christian suffers without exercising any influence for good upon the world or the church. But as I quoted earlier about the Apostle Paul, as one writer put it, here is how one for whom Christ and the gospel are uppermost responds to adversity or suffering. When faced with difficult circumstances, beloved, or in our sufferings, is this not right? I'm going to make the statement. Is this not right? We often get tunnel vision. Our pain, our suffering is all we can see. That's what I mean. And as a result, I'm speaking from personal experience, but maybe I'm, I'm thinking a lot of you can relate even to what I'm saying. And as a result of this tunnel vision, we can be filled with self-pity. Depression may set in. That's an ugly monster. Anxiety may start to consume us. We might begin to shut down, withdraw from one another. I've seen this, beloved. Too, too much. Even withdraw from God, which is like the worst thing you could do. And as a result of those things, because of our, our tunnel vision, 
And the consequences of that, as a result of those things, no good fruit is produced. But, but rather only that which is harmful to us. It's harmful. And I would add, harmful to the, your witness for Christ. And I would add, not helpful to your watching brothers and sisters in Christ. Not helpful to them. I mean, I don't know about you, but I need to be encouraged. Do you need to be encouraged? Like, to stay the course, to fight the fight? Well, I'll tell you, there's nothing more encouraging than watching a brother or sister do that very thing. Especially when you would think that they might most naturally do the opposite thing because of their very difficult circumstances. And yet, it's even in those most darkest days and times that the light of Christ is shining the most brightest in their lives. I, I, that's to me, that just spurs me on. Encourages me. So beloved, what is the important thing? That one's sufferings or difficult circumstances come to an end? Or that, in whatever circumstances one might find themselves, they look to make Christ known, to proclaim and demonstrate by their lives the goodness of Christ, the power of Christ, the love of Christ. That they look to show others the great salvation that they have in Christ and that Christ offers to all. Why? So that one's suffering might bear fruit and lead to the greater progress of the gospel. So that one's bad circumstances might serve to further spread the good news of Jesus. Ah, this one's a hard one for me. Maybe for you too. I'll close with this quote that I found. That it was, uh, it's a good way to close out the sermon. Two friends were talking together, one older and wise, the other younger, and passing through a severe testing time. The older friend, with loving wisdom, said, No moment will ever again be like this. Let there be something for Jesus in it. It is not something for Jesus if we dwell on our miseries, nor if we let opportunities pass without a word about our Lord, nor if we think that any hand other than His brought us to that place. It is something for Jesus if we think and speak about Him and His glory. It is something for Him if we acknowledge and trust in His all-sovereign will. Father in heaven, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for the Apostle Paul I thank you for his example, for his life, all by your grace, all because of your salvation. 
all because of the work of your spirit in his life. Father, help us work in our hearts to, to move us closer to what you want us to be. I trust and pray that you might do that in all of our lives. It's in our Lord and Savior's name. And, and Father, it is. It must be all about him. Help us to see it that way. Help us to live that way. Help us, Father. In Christ's name, amen.